The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. You've been there watching the Olympics and you see the gymnast flying through the air doing unbelievable twists and turns and then splat. The gymnast fails to stick the landing. And all of the beautiful twists and turns are forgotten, and all you can remember is the crash on the floor. Well, what can happen in the Olympics also happens to too many books. They start out strong, they're flipping, they're flying, but they fail to stick the landing. Well, sticking the landing is what we're going to talk about in today's episode of the Christian Publishing Show. We're going to talk about how to end your book in a way that it is super satisfying. And we have the expert on how to stick the landing. He has written more than 20 books for authors, including the very popular The Last 50 Pages. James Scott Bell, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Hello, Thomas. It is great to be here as always. So why do so many novels fail to stick the landing? Why do they have a great... And why so many TV shows, too, for that matter? Why was the ending of Lost so bad? Explain it to me. I've been wondering for all these years. You know, that's exactly how I begin my book with that example. Because you remember how wildly popular Lost was. I don't know how many seasons. Was it seven? Something like that. And um, I remember discussing this on a writer's loop with a lot of writers that you and I know who were just going crazy about how great this show was. So I start watching, you know, the first season. And after about five or six episodes, I said, hold on a minute, people. It's really easy to write a cliffhanger ending that you don't have to explain. And that's what they did. Every episode ended with this huge, mysterious, how on earth could this possibly be happening, ending. And that made people want to keep watching and watching. And I kept saying, wait till they have to wrap this up, people. You're going to be disappointed. And everybody was, no, no, this is a great show. Well, of course, we know what happened. The ending was a huge disappointment. And even the writers admitted that... uh, They had no idea how they were going to wrap the thing up. So maybe the first lesson here is try to have at least some idea of what you're shooting for. You know, you can, it's subject to change without notice because you're the writer. But, you know, writing yourself into that deep of an abyss kind of made it impossible for them to get out. So that's a, that's kind of a prime example of what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, going back to the gymnastics um, analogy, there is a certain way when you're doing a flip that leads into another flip, you're using the momentum from the last jump to bring you into the next jump. And it's very different than the final landing because the final landing has to culminate all of the momentum because if you bring too much momentum into that final landing, you end up kind of toppling forward. And I think that's exactly what happened to Lost was that they had so many unfulfilled promises. There was so much momentum going into the landing that, or to the conclusion that they weren't able to. The train was going full speed into the track, and yet you don't want the story to feel like it's slowing down towards the end. 
And so how do you how do you manage that? How do you bring the train to a satisfying conclusion without it being a boring conclusion? Because you can also overcompensate the other way where it's like why it's kind of like the end of the Lord of the Rings movies where it kept ending and ending and ending. It's <laughs> like maybe this ending's going on too long. Well, there a couple of things. I think number one and this gets into the issue of those who like to plan their books, outliners or, you know, planners. And then there's the pantsers that so-called uh, right by the seat of the pants who get to the ending and maybe it doesn't work. You know, that's that's kind of the always been my fear of just not doing any planning at all is you write this, you're writing this book. And I think that's kind of one of the uh, things that Stephen King has advocated in his book. You know, you'll get to an ending somewhere. And yet I think if there's a criticism to be made about many of his novels, it's the endings. And that's the reason, is that you got... To to wrap it up in a way that not only satisfies, but leaves kind of what I call resonance. It's a, a feeling uh, in that you want to create in the reader that makes them so... You know, feel like they've they've been on this journey with you and they're so glad they went all the way to the end and even wish it could continue. And that will continue with your next book. Because that's uh, one of my favorite quotes on this is uh, what Mickey Spillane, the, who was what one time the best-selling writer in the world, he wrote these hard-boiled uh, private investigator novels. He said, the first chapter sells your book. The last chapter sells your next book. And that really is so true. So I think for whatever kind of writer you are, have an idea of the feeling that you want to leave the readers with. Do you want them to be supremely happy? Do you want them to be cheering? Do you want it to be bittersweet? Have an idea of what you want them to feel. And that feeling that you have will start to create images and possibilities for your ending. That's really good. In Hollywood, they say um, that the most satisfying endings have the the story with the antagonist and the protagonist and the story between the protagonist and the relationship character. Both of those stories conclude in the closest amount of seconds to each other, the more satisfying the ending is. So you have Neo and his relationship with Trinity and Neo and his relationship with um, Agent Smith, right? Trinity believes that Neo is the one. She kisses him. It brings Neo back to life and he has the power to defeat Agent Smith. And all of that happens in a 90 second window, which makes the ending a very emotionally satisfying ending. That's kind of the, the Hollywood approach. But Hollywood stories tend to be much simpler, right? You just have those three characters in most Hollywood stories. What's the trick in a story with you know a whole bunch of characters and a whole bunch of plot lines? How do you still have that emotionally resonant kind of ending where everything is tied up in a bow? Well, it, and not everything has to be tied up in a bow, in a perfect bow. There, there are endings that kind of uh, leave the reader projecting into the future. You know, uh, the, the, the author leaves it in such a place where the reader thinks, oh, I think, well, that's perfect example is Gone with the Wind, right? Is Scarlet going to get Rhett back? We don't know. Um, you know, tomorrow's another day. And it's still a satisfying ending because the reader then brings their expectation of this character. Will, will she or won't she? They can kind of write the ending themselves. So I do think that there is a, a key to the kind of ending you were just talking about. You know, you have, I'm, I write primarily thrillers. So I, you know, I have the thrilling plot line, but then I also have a plot line involving 
the main character and what I call the transformation. And that is at the end of the novel, this character is not going to be the same as he was at the beginning. Um, now there's two ways of transforming it. We can get into it a little bit, but you know, some characters like a, say a Jack Reacher character seems to be the same every time. And yet what the transformation that he's going through is making him a stronger character, a wiser character and so forth. In other, in other cases, you have a, a, a hero who goes through the, you know, the plot uh, elements and the, the danger and the overcoming and the obstacles. And then at the end, their personality is transformed into another better, usually, personality. Sometimes, sometimes it's not. Like in The Godfather, Michael Corleone has a transformation, but his is from a positive to a negative. So there's all kinds of nice variations you can use. But when you have that final visual, and I call this proving the transformation on the page, you have a final chapter which shows the character in their new state. It's very satisfying to the reader. That's where you get that kind of satisfying resonance that the readers had had more than just a plot-heavy book. They've they've had a real personal relationship with the character. A masterclass in this is the Wheel of Time books. So Robert Jordan is writing these Wheel of Time books, and each book he's adding point-of-view characters, and by the time he dies, he has something like 60 or 80 named point-of-view characters, right? This is happening, the story's happening across an entire continent. It's an incredibly complex story, and then he dies. <laughs> and so Brandon Sanderson comes in to finish the story. And, you know, you your book is the last 50 pages. For Brandon Sanderson, it was the last, you know, 2,000 pages <laughs> to kind of bring this story to, to a conclusion. He did it over, I think, two or three books. And one of the ways that he did it was he started kind of tying up some of those point-of-view characters and giving them their own satisfying conclusions to their own kind of plot arc without it ending the whole story. But the other thing, going back to what you said earlier, that I think is really key, is that Robert Jordan, before he died, and I think, I think back when he wrote book one, he wrote the final page of the very final book. And so he knew where he wanted to bring Rand, the protagonist, and the feeling that he wanted to convey. And so even though he was dead, he, that with that one page and all of his notes, another author was able to bring the story to a really satisfying conclusion because he knew what he was trying to get to. And ultimately, this big, you know, continent-wide story is about this one man and this one man's journey. And that's wow. where you got to end the, the music, right? As all the instruments are slowly stopping to play, there's the one bugle. Yeah, I find that really fascinating. Have you read the Wheel of Time books? Uh, I, I, no, I have a friend who, who was a big fan of them until about number seven or whatever it was, and he just got worn out. He said, I can't take it anymore. Now, I know that you're, you're, an, epic, you're an epic guy, and there are those people who love these epics. Um, so I never read them. But what you just said is, is so, I think, instructive. Because in a book, uh, a series that complex... To have just the idea of how you want it to feel at the end was enough of a through line that when he was creating these these characters and these plots, he knew the the direction he was going. He he didn't know the exact perhaps map he was going to follow, but he knew that he knew that he was heading east instead of west. And uh, I think any writer can do that. And one of the things that we were talking about just now about the you know the the A story and the B story, 
is a is a key to um, a series as well. You can have a series character, and this is what I'm doing right now. I have a series character called Mike Romeo, and I'm I'm working on book six now. You can have each book have a plot, a thriller plot, and then personal relationships, and the 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 main plot wraps up because readers really demand that. But then you can leave a little bit of openness as regards to the relationship with the other characters. And so in the next book, people want to know, okay, here's a new adventure, but how does he resolve? What's this love story thing going on? Or, or what's his relationship with uh, his, his sidekick? How is that going to resolve? And so that's a really great way to keep readers hooked on the series element. That's right. Just because the book is ended doesn't mean that you necessarily want all of the plot lines to end, right? The fact that there are unresolved story threads are what make people curious about the next book. But you can't overdo it. You can have the book end where nothing is resolved and they feel like they've been gypped, that the whole book is just a commercial uh, for the next book. And I think um, Butcher made this mistake uh, with his – he he had two books that came out in two months – and the first book didn't feel like a full Harry Dresden book. It felt like a commercial for the next book because it didn't really resolve anything. It brought all of the unanswered questions from the previous book into the next book while adding a whole bunch more. Now, the next book, very satisfying ending, but that um, there that is something to manage. How do you tell? Well, first of all, let me say this. There was a no- I remember a novel that came out in the 90s and... Um, I can't remember the title. I can't remember the author. I can't remember the publisher. But I remember my wife getting the book. And she was reading it. And she said, gosh, this is so good. And she was telling me how great it was. And then she gets to the end. And it doesn't end. And wait a minute. Oh, they're going to bring out another, a second book to tie this up. And what had happened, I found out later, was that the, the publisher got this really thick book. And they thought, you know what? We can actually sell more by splitting it into two and getting people to buy the first one than the second one. But what happened was people were so mad that this thing stopped without any resolution at all. And, of course, the obvious thought is they just want more my money. So, no, you can't do that. You don't want to cheat the readers like that. So how do you tell if it's satisfying enough? If you're writing a series, let's say you've got 12 books that you want to write in a series, how do you know that each book is has a satisfying ending while still making somebody want the next ending? How is it a Lay's potato chip where it still feels like you've eaten something but makes you also makes you hungry for the next one? <laughs> well, what I did when I set out to write my uh, Mike Romeo series, uh, I intentionally, I knew that, the I knew the basic plot of the first book and the second book, and I knew that they were standalone plots in terms of the you know the obstacle and the challenge and the the crime that was going to be uh, committed in these books and so on. But what I purposely did was I created a chart of my character's inner life, and I I created the issues that he would have to deal with in order for him to become a more complete person because he has all these wounds that he's dealing with and so what that enabled me to do and I actually mapped it out in a very nice diagram for myself but 
that made that showed me where in each book I knew exactly what inner part of him the book was dealing with. And so that was that enabled me to kind of have this nice feeling of in each book he's getting closer and closer and closer to becoming who he's supposed to be. And um, I, I think just kind of having an idea of that, of your character's inner life, uh, will help you solve, solve the uh, question that you just raised. And then the other thing is, I think at the end, when you, when you, the writer, finish writing that manuscript, you've got to feel something. If you're not feeling it, then you then there's something missing that you've got to go back and find and put in. I keep thinking of the um, opening of Romancing the Stone. If, if you recall, um, the uh, character, the writer, the woman who writes these uh, romances, she's she's got her headphones on and she's typing and she's just bawling. She's crying because she's created this fantastic ending for herself. Well, there's something to that, you know, that, that you, you yourself need to have some kind of feeling of, of resonance too. And then that's just, that's a clue that you're on the right track. Yeah. And and one way that a lot of novels do this and really make it emotionally resonant is they foreshadow that ending ahead of time, right? It's kind of like a stand-up comedian. They want their final closing joke of the set to, you know, reference one of their earlier bits that was really funny and that um, foreshadowing that where, you know, that thing you talked about in chapter one is now it's like, Oh, now it makes sense. And I feel like in thrillers and in mysteries, this is particularly popular of kind of putting the gun on the mantelpiece in chapter one. And then finally uh, when the detective at the end is explaining how it happened, it was like, it was the gun on the mantelpiece that ended up being the murder weapon or whatever. So how do you set up that foreshadowing, especially uh, as a pantser, right? Because it's easy for an outliner. They're like, okay, here's where we're going to put in the foreshadowing. They plan it all out ahead of time. But if you're writing by the seat of your pants, how do you work that in? Is that something you do in the revisions or do you do that as you're writing? Well, there's no one right answer, but I will say, uh, and I'm not here to plug another one of my books, Thomas, but I'll just mention it anyway. Oh, plug uh, away, plug away. <laughs> No, I wrote a book called Write Your Novel from the Middle, which is all about this issue. And where pantsers and plotters, at whatever point in time, they want to get a through line and an understanding of what they're writing, they can go to this midpoint, uh, what I call a mirror moment, and and figure it out. I, I won't go into it now, but the what what we talked about transformation earlier, and that's... That's really the key point to the to the resonance that we're we're describing now, and what I what I say and what a really cool thing to do, and if you're a if you're a uh, pantser, you may just write this scene and see what happens, is that early in Act One, have the protagonist make an argument against that transformation or that lesson learned, and the example I use I use a couple of uh, in the book, but one of them is um, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. At the end, what's her big takeaway? There's no place like home. But then early in Act 1, she argues she wants to be any place but home. She wants to get over that rainbow to a place where there's no trouble. And what, what that's a nice arc because the readers or the viewer 
think back to that moment. It stays with them. And the other one, the other great example is um, It's a Wonderful Life. At the end, what does George learn? He learns no man is a failure if he has friends who come and and are with him at the crucial moment in this, you know, this small uh, podunk town. But in the in the very in the beginning, when they have the flashback and he's a boy, all he wants to do is get out of that town. And he says to the two girls that grow up to be the women in his life, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go out exploring and I'm going to have three or four wives and a harem. You just watch. And by the end, of course, he's married to one woman and he's got his family and he's got his town. And we think back to that to that earlier what I call argument against the transformation. So I'd make that suggestion to the writers is, you know, whether when you're writing, whether you're planning it or you're just, you know, you're off and running, think about a scene where your your uh, lead character kind of makes an argument against what's going to eventually be a transformative moment at the end. I love that. What are some of the other steps for setting up that uh ending what's your process so you start with the middle uh you have them you know make an argument against the transformation what are some of the other uh steps to uh, make that ending really sing well and then you know in the in the middle i like to have a moment where the character is forced to look at himself or herself as if looking in a mirror you know therefore they're confronting themselves at at the very middle portion of the book in some cases it's you know they're looking at themselves and saying what a what kind of a person am i what why am i like this how can i can i become another a better person that's essentially what happens at the middle of casablanca and then we go on to see if that's how he's going to transform and the other kind is the character is look, looking at himself or herself and thinking gosh the odds are too great i can't possibly win i'm probably going to die in fact and that's the very middle of the Hunger Games and the very middle of um, The Fugitive uh, with uh, Harrison Ford. And then the transformation is the character becoming stronger as they, as they proceed. So I think having that kind of an idea. And then when it comes to writing the actual ending, and I spend more time on my last 50 pages, really my last five pages, than I do on any other part of the book because I want it to be just right. I want it to sound right. I want to leave with just the right word. So what I do is I just, I call uh, stew, brew, and do. I spend um, uh, like an hour or two just really thinking about the ending to come that I'm going to write. Then I, that's that's called stewing, then I go take a walk to uh, you know the local coffee house Take a jolt of caffeine. That's brew. And then I come back. And then I start making uh, like mind map notes. I'm a big advocate of the mind map idea. I just, I just want whatever my subconscious is trying to tell me. And so I'll make all these random mind map notes. And then I'll come back and organize those. Like the steps. Like the this will be this scene, this scene, this scene. And that's really how I order the final moments of a book and then i just and then i just write it that's interesting that's really similar to the process isaac asimov used he wrote a fascinating essay on creativity and about how to get stuck out of mental ruts and he had a technique that he would use that he talks about um in his 
essay. The essay is titled The Eureka Phenomenon. It's a masterpiece, and it's actually an essay about science because um, it's one of Asimov's science essays, but he uses his writing as an example, and he talks about how so many scientific breakthroughs happen while somebody's thinking about something else. And, and of course, the famous story is, I think it's Archimedes in the bathtub who, who shouts Eureka and goes, you know, running down the street naked because he just discovered buoyancy. Is, right, <laughs> and, right. Um, but Asimov has maybe a dozen examples of different scientific breakthroughs that happen this way and how often when we think really hard on something, we tend to think the same thoughts over and over again. But that thinking is really beneficial. But then if we take a break, right, we right. go for a walk, we get a shot of caffeine or for Asimov. What he talks about is he would go and watch a mindless movie, <laughs> a mindless action film to take his mind off of his own story. He'd go to the cinema. And by the time he got back, he said, 100% of the time, I knew what to write next in my story. And Asimov wrote, I don't know, more science fiction novels than almost anyone ever. <laughs> he was right. very prolific. And this method worked really well for him. And so I think giving yourself permission to take a break and even telling yourself, I'm going to go on a walk. I'm going to think about something else. I'm going to let my mind rest after a real intense time of focus. That's a really reproducible technique and not just for endings. I would say, I would say for any time you're stuck with your book, right? You know, stew, what what do you say? Stew, brew. What what were the three again? Yeah. Stew, brew, and do. That's the writing of it. (laughs) There you go. Stew, brew, and do that, that need that, that is gold right there. I think that that is really reproducible. Let me feed back on something you just said. Um, you mentioned Asimov. It's so true. I, when I studied for the bar exam, you know, in California, two day grueling exam, you know, I just was, I took a bar review course and I was studying and studying and studying. And then the, night before i went out to see the muppets take manhattan you know just a a purely entertaining mindless movie and came back and i i realized i did great on the bar exam but that's exactly the right thinking um and i guess maybe that lesson has always stayed with me so yeah i like that one thing brandon sanderson does to stay so prolific is that he mixes his books uh, that he's writing so he takes breaks from his big epic fantasy series to write these shorter books, often in different genres or a little bit different genres, to give himself a break. And he'll often do like the first draft over here and then he'll you know go and edit this other book and then he goes back and does his second draft. So he's always approaching it with a fresh mind and it's why he's able to write you know a dozen books <laughs> in the meanwhile uh certain other fantasy authors write zero books not to name any names but uh, some of them are not nearly as prolific and they get um made fun of but we've been talking about kind of standard endings kind of the standard satisfying ending but i i would um since i'm talking to a thriller author we have to talk about twist endings the unexpected ending what makes a good twist ending a good twist ending is an ending the readers don't anticipate and the key is how do you find it one one of the um best ways to create a twist ending is to um when you get to the end and you're about to have the big reveal is to think back and think wait a minute could it be another character is there a way to work in someone that the the readers did not expect to be involved now that can happen in planning too i mean i try to do this is when i'm planning it out and mapping it out and having my suspects and and kind of having an idea of who's going to be doing it 
in that planning process and even in the first you know uh, beginning 10 20,000 words I'm I'm constantly kind of revising that and thinking okay I've introduced some new characters here what would it be like if they were the ones that were truly involved that's one way to do it I think you by cooking on the manuscript it feeds your mind those things the uh, the other way is and I got this I can't remember it was a, a, a book on thriller writing I can't remember who wrote it right now but they called this the twist in the tale and what they said was this author was right come up with two or three endings write two or three endings and then take the best one to be your ending and then the next best one to be your twist and so what you're doing is your mind is forcing itself to come up with these satisfying endings but now you have two or three to play with and you can then uh, use the one you like best that is a classic Hollywood solution because that's what Hollywood does with movies. They will often film multiple endings and test them on test audiences. And a famous example of this is Endgame. Endgame, the initial ending, was terrible. The I am Iron Man line wasn't even in it. And then like everyone kind of knelt and like honored Tony Stark's sacrifice. And it was just a terrible, terrible ending. It's like, thank God they had tested multiple endings on audiences because the ending that they ended up going with, which you have to watch the movie to see it, was much more emotionally satisfying, but they didn't get there initially. Well, you know, the most famous example, I think, is Casablanca. Because Casablanca was based on a play called Everybody Comes to Rick's. And in the movie, you'll recall, there's a bet made between the Bogart character and the French police captain, uh, Louis, about whether Victor Laszlo will be captured. And they bet 10,000 10, francs. And Bogart is betting 10,000 francs that Laszlo will get away. So at the end, when Laszlo is you know on the plane and the uh, Nazi major has been uh, dispatched, and Louis and has decided that he's going to leave Casablanca. He and um, Rick, Rick, the character, are walking off, you know, in that famous scene. And the last line, as originally written, was, you still owe me 10,000 francs. And that's kind of like, oh, yeah, very funny, <laughs> you know. The bet is settled. And the, the, the writers, everybody thought that did, that wasn't good enough. So the writers stayed up all night and they, they came up with, and they finally came up with, you know, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, which becomes maybe the most famous of all time. And again, look at that, Thomas. It's about the relationship, isn't it? That's the, the 10,000 francs line was about the plot, but this is a beautiful friendship was about the relationship. And the 10,000 francs line wasn't a bad ending. And this is, I think, a really key takeaway. It's that just because you have a good ending doesn't mean that you have the best possible ending, right? If that's how the movie would have ended, people would have not left it like leaving lost, right? It's like, oh, I hated the way Casablanca ended. It would have been good, but it wouldn't have been great, right? They kept working at it and they found that ending that was great. And you don't know if your ending is good or great until you've written two or three. 
and now you have something to compare it to, right? It's easy if you're comparing it to nothing. It's like, well, it's better than nothing. It's better than not ending the story. It's like, no, write a couple different endings and test them on your beta readers. This is, uh, I'm a big fan of beta readers. And this is a really great thing to test on your beta readers. And you know what? You can take those alternate endings that you rejected and you can give them away to your super fans, right? And kind of have a d- deleted scenes on a DVD, right? Why are there so many alternate endings on DVDs? It's because they filmed them. So like, why not give them away and let you see all the terrible ways this movie could have ended, uh, but we realized weren't the best way to have it end. Oh, yeah. Ever the marketer, Thomas. Great idea. <laughs> For more marketing advice, listen to my other podcast, Novel Marketing, uh, where you can go into things like this all the time. But uh, what other advice do you have on those final 50 pages? What what should we have talked about but we didn't get to? I think um, me, we, I mentioned it earlier, but it bears repeating is the sound of the last line. Um, you know, some of the, the most famous last lines in literature, they just they're they're so perfect um like i'll I'll mention you know the to kill a mockingbird has one of the most famous um it's where you know atticus after all the things have gone through and all of the things that you know jim had almost died and at the end he he's sitting there and it says he he went into jim's room he would be there all night and he would be there when jim waked up in the morning and it's just something about the sound of that, that you can actually say it out loud that that makes all the difference. Here's another tip. A lot of times what I'll do is find the resonant ending in a line of dialogue that is repeated. So somebody has said something at a crucial scene earlier in the book, and then the relationship is coming down to that last scene and then what is the final thing that can be said? It can be a repeat of a memorable line of dialogue that, that they had shared at a crucial moment in the story. So there are many different ways to go about it, uh, but find the right sound is really one of the keys to making readers want to read your next book. The ending really is what establishes your brand and really where your brand is established if you want an enduring brand is when someone finishes your book, they sit it down and they just sit there and experience the book. And if it's got the right sound, like what you're talking about, it's echoing through their mind and they're feeling all of the feelings that you want them to feel. (laughs) And that's, that's a really powerful act as an author to cause somebody to feel something. And if you pull it off, uh, it really is satisfying. And it's what makes that reader want to buy all of your following books uh, if i highly recommend if you want help ending your books better we've just barely scratched the surface you should check out james scott bell's the last 50 pages it's available on amazon we'll have an affiliate link in the show notes at christianpublishingshow.com and i'll also include a link to write your novel from the middle if you haven't read that one yet these go hand in hand good endings are set up ahead of time, uh, which is why I keep bringing James Scott Bell back on the show, and I've officially dubbed him a friend of the show. (laughs) So uh, real quick, Jim, before we go, any final tips or encouragement? I made it. I made it to friend of the show. Yes. Um, The the encouragement (laughs) is uh, that podcasts like this, blogs, books, articles, there's an abundance of material out there to help you with your craft. I would say just... Every 
every day that you're you're uh, writing, make it part of your day to just study a, a little aspect of the craft and try to uh, incorporate that into what you're doing. When you write, just write. Don't think about rules. Don't think about uh, craft issues. Just write. And then after that, take some time to look back on what you did. And when you see some problem areas, just strengthen them. And that's really the, the one-two punch of a successful career. Keep writing, keep productive, keep studying, keep learning. And you have a, you have a good way to go there. Well said. And if you are looking for help as you continue to learn, you want to see a list of conferences or online resources to help you learn, a great resource to help you find that is the Christian Writer's Market Guide. It doesn't just have a list of all the literary agents and indie publishers and editors. It also has a list of online places where you can go and learn how to write better, conferences where you can meet with experts that help you learn how to write better. It is the indispensable resource for any Christian author, and you can find it at christianwritersmarketguide.com or anywhere books are sold or at your local library. You can check it out from the library, and if they don't have it, make sure you request that they stock the the 2021 edition of the Christian Writers Market Guide. James Scott Bell, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you, Thomas. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.